Nelson, and you are listening to the Starting Block Podcast. This, guys, is a show for complete athletic development. Our mission here, our objective, is to give you guys the tools to win, whether you're the athlete, the parent, or the coach. Now, if you're new to our show, welcome. Appreciate you joining us. Here's how our show operates, because we are a little different. We're a little unique. We actually have multiple episodes within the show. So the first episode, I should, well, it's usually a bi-weekly episode, but this summer has kind of thrown us for a loop. So typically, we have a bi-weekly episode where it's Q&A, where that's myself and my co-host, Chris Scarborough. What's up? Good afternoon. This is where Chris and I will answer questions related to training, performance, uh, rehab, nutrition, speed, you name it, we'll uh, tackle it on the show. We will be getting back to those uh, bi-weekly. If I'm just being real with y'all, this summer has kind of been wild, I think, for everybody in our field, you know, just with college and pro crew coming back. And then here in Memphis, we've had crazy, crazy storms. We were without water power for seven days and, you know, and then took a vacation and it's just kind of been a lot. So, we're, uh, we're revamping and getting back into it. So um, we actually had a bank of guest episodes, which is our second episode that we offer. And so we kind of started to release those. So appreciate uh, y'all hanging in there. And I know y'all probably like listening to the guests more than you like hearing us, you know, babble on anyway. So probably worked out for everybody. Um, so like I said, it's Q&A. Um, Chris, where can people submit the questions for that? Info at startingblockpodcast.com. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we can also attack them on the YouTube page. Uh, you guys have left a ton of comments on our YouTube page, uh, namely Dr. Jack Cruz's episode. And that's awesome. We appreciate y'all so much. But if you have questions, um, I know specifically there were some questions that you guys wanted us to ask Dr. Jack. And if y'all are listening to this, uh, we have reached out to him. Uh, I believe, right, Chris, he has said he will come back on the show, but we don't have it scheduled just yet. Is that correct? Correct. He has agreed to come back on for uh, for segment part cool. two. However, cool. we do not have a date set yet, but we hope to uh, at least record that interview in the next few weeks and, uh, yeah. of course, release it you know, yeah. as soon as we can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, guys, I appreciate the the love there, and Dr. Jack was great. All our guests are awesome, but uh, thanks for all the comments and everything. And, you know, the questions that you sent us, we'll definitely you know, bring it to his attention as long as Uncle Jack's cool with that. Um, and so those are our two episodes. And then we will be getting back to kind of that third one that you'll hear maybe every couple months or so, which is just like a real talk, just a, you know, Friday fire fact, just, you know, 20 minutes of a little insight into this industry, maybe something that happened, something that's on uh, my mind from the business, motivational side of stuff. It's kind of more for you know coaches young coaches you know that listen to our show um you know we uh i think combined chris my guy how many, how long do we have like 40 50 years experience or something together in this field so if there's something we can help the young coaches with uh you know we'd love to help you guys any way we can so yeah um, that's basically our show breakdown we do have a fee for the show we ask that you pay your dues and share the show uh, you guys are really starting to put that out there and we are extremely grateful for that you support our mission. That's what this is all about, just helping you guys grow and win, and uh, that's that's our objective. And so we want you guys to just leave a quick review, share it, get it out there. That's all we ask. And, uh, yeah, so without further ado, um, let's get into it. Today is a Q&A. So what, uh, what do we have today, Chris? Question number one, John, what makes muscles shut down? Well, that's direct and to the point. Okay. Um, <laughs> geez. All right. Very simple uh, question. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Um, okay. That's kind of a loaded question. Um, 
I'm actually going to start from like a different side of it. Like something that I get, and I don't know if we've addressed this or not, um, but sometimes people confuse what we do. They think we're doing like RPR or like, you know, be activated. And that's not, I mean, don't get me wrong. We have those, you know, both Chris and I can utilize those techniques, but uh, that's not really our prime modality. And I think there's uh, you know, a little confused. I want to kind of clarify that. Like there's a time and place for it, but I bring that up because how you evaluate why muscles shut down in the activation process is a little bit different, like stimulating neurolymphatic reflex in, you know, like RPR be activated versus like a Chapman reflex or, you know, utilizing like neurotarget and, and targeting a specific you know, cortex-based weakness. Um, those are kind of different. But in essence, um, what turns muscles off? Um, well, there could be like a kink in the hose, as Garrett Salpeter likes to say, like in that neurolymphatic junction. So that's kind of why I brought it up. But um, moving into more of what we do. Um, well, muscles are like important, but they're not important. Um, and if you've listened to our show, you understand that that's uh, I pretty much answer every question like that. Um, yes, but when you look at the hierarchy like of of our body, um, and I can't remember the book. You may know somebody brought the book up um, in one episode. I don't remember who it was, Chris. Like um, I don't know, biomechanical motor patterns or something. I don't remember. But if you look at the hierarchy of needs in our body, our muscles basically just aren't even on there. Like, they're not really relevant. And that's because, you know, we need them to stabilize and to protect. But at the end of the day, the body's ultimate job is survival. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, Sal Peters always phrases, is, you know, a perception of threat. And I think that's just a very good way to say it. If there's a perception of threat or a stress response, the body is going to probably naturally inhibit or draw energy away. And so... That's kind of one. What is the stress? What is the threat? That could go, my gosh. I mean, that can go down a huge, huge, huge. That's a whole other episode. There could be a, you know, nutrient deficiency. There could be a gut issue. There could be, um, you know, a meridian issue. I mean, it, go on and on. So that's one. Um, two, I guess, uh, off the top of my head. Two could be a flawed movement pattern, like a flaw, like, like a joint issue. I, I guess I'll combine those two together, right? Like, Let's just say, um, what's a good example, Chris? Like, let's just say you know. that someone has a. Let's just say someone has an old meniscus tear. Which, by yeah. the way, if anybody has ever treat, I'm sure most people who've been in the medical field for any length of time has dealt with someone who has a meniscus tear yeah. that happened 10, 20, 30 years prior, mm-hmm. and they're yeah. just now having you know symptoms. You know, they're just yeah. now having symptoms where it's really showing up. And affecting their daily life. Well, what a lot of times what will happen is there begins to get, you know, irritation and swelling and just fluid inside that joint. And a lot of times the joint will send signals to the surrounding musculature and say, hey, I I don't want to hurt anymore. I'm going to shut you down. And that's just, it's a receptor. You know, it's Mm -hmm. a a sensory receptor sending signals to nearby Mm -hmm. tissue saying, hey, help me. You yeah, know? so you could look at it that. Yeah, it's funny you bring the meniscus up. I've seen, I think I've seen two or three just in the last like week. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, that's a great point. So the body can you know um, alter you know patterns from that and muscular muscular recruitment. But even if you want to keep it simple, so some of you new coaches that are kind of you know getting getting into this realm, like in my mind, and and there, I don't know if there's, I'm sure there's literature on it somewhere, but I'm just saying in 16 years of experience, what I have seen is that yeah, if there are you know, mobility issues, 
then yeah, you're you're going or like capsular issues, then that can absolutely inhibit you know or cause muscles to fail um, for sure. And so, like, what is a standard for mobility? I don't know off the top of my head, and I don't really care. Um, everybody's got different things, and so it doesn't matter to me right now. We talked about active, passive ranges of motion last time, um, but poor mobility can absolutely influence that. Um, you know, we talked about the movement side of it, you know, breathing could be a part of it as well, but that's also goes back to kind of phase one of like a stress response. Um, that's, uh, that's really two or three of kind of the main reasons that a muscle is shut off. It could go deeper though, too. So like, uh, you know, there could be a continued imbalance in, you know, in the brain. So like, let's utilize something like scoliosis. Um, we need to redo that episode. Cause, um, that's an old, we, we did a really short one on that, but mm-hmm. like scoliosis, for example, cause I've seen a couple of people over the last few weeks and it's, it's kind of top of mind for me right now. Like when we have an imbalance within the cerebellum, which is the part of the brain that coordinates movement and posture, like in something that is truly, truly like, um, you know, downregulated, so to speak, then you'll see kind of a, a continued, um, you know, shutdown of a muscle. Like we can get things firing, but then boom, it's going to drop down. It can go even deeper than that. So then you get into stuff like Dr. J, Dr. Rob, right? Like metabolic thresholds. We can get into, you know, cranial faults. There's all kinds of stuff. But in general, I would say if you're a new coach kind of getting into this stuff, those are some of the elements I would look at. Look at movement. You know, if there's a gut issue, you can do every activation thing in the world you want. The gut's going to override it every single time. Um, I'm lucky enough to have my wife here who is a doctor in naturopath medicine that can help with that. So that really works well for me. Um, makes me look good. <laughs> <laughs> it does help. Yeah, yeah. Mandy's great. Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't know. Is that is that probably fair? I mean, should we go yes. any deeper on that? Like. Yeah, I mean, just, just, I mean, to, to, let's be fair to RPR and you know, neurotargeting yeah. and let's at square one. Yeah, RPR is more of a quantitative measure, a quantitative. How strong are you? Mm-hmm. Where neurotargeting and square one would be much more geared toward timing issue, not how strong are you, but True. rather is it is the muscle working at the right time? In other words, is it turning on? Mm-hmm at the amount of time that I want, I'm trying to put that, that force into it, not how much it's a timing mm-hmm. issue, not how much force. So yeah. yes, they, they're, they're both, they're both excellent systems. So, you know, you know, RPR practitioners, you know, minimal hate mail, but yes, it's true. We can use those systems, but that's not usually what we're talking about. Shutting a muscle off. Mm-hmm. That's really more referring to muscle weakness as mm-hmm. opposed to muscle shut off. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you know, and then I think building on that, I, I think there's two other things that I, I want to touch on that just kind of popped into my brain. Um, one is rea- a reactive muscles. Um, you know, without diving too deep into that, like, I mean, it's as simple as just opposing muscle groups, so to speak, right? Like bicep, tricep, right? But, you know, it can go deeper. And so like, if there's, dysfunction in you know in a muscle it can actually create this reactive response and shut down you can actually do that in muscle testing um you know you if i'm having trouble finding like a therapy localization or if something again continues to shut down i've kind of gone down this path of like okay we're having trouble driving this up you know we've used the newbie or arp or whatever and you know we've done you know neurotarget and we've done everything it's like still kind of there you know 
I, I like to go down that reactive route. I, I've found that be to be very beneficial, and I utilize uh, muscle testing to do that as well. Yeah. Um, I don't really – is there anybody out there that really teaches that a whole lot, Chris? Like, I'm not familiar. I've kind of learned that on my own. Yeah, you know, and, and really, if you think about it, a lot of the training methodologies that, that you and I use, at least as far as, like, you know, ISO extremes. If uh, you sure. think about it, that's really geared toward it training is. that – very system that very thing you're talking right, the about the old fit evo sports system which we yes. utilize yes i mean exactly right right exactly. Um, but like being able to actually manual and muscle test with that you know to identify specific reactive muscles yes um you know so um and then the other one is going to be something we've never really touched on before but um is basically the um you know, the biomechanical motor programs of the human nervous system. So, like, I like to think of it, you know, I use the matrix as my example of, like, you know, when Neo gets that kung fu, you know, program loaded into <laughs> him. And, you know, a lot of this crew is not even going to remember what a floppy disk is or don't even know what a <laughs> floppy disk is. But there used to be these little square things you put in a computer, and it, you, it, uh, it was your memory card, basically. But, like, you know, you can have those different programs and, and – so like, you know, you've got different, like a fencer and then you've got like a, you know, um, you know, crawling, sitting, standing, walking, running, jumping, like these different, you know, biomechanical motor patterns that they work in this hierarchy and like when there's stress or other things that are playing roles and stuff, like it can actually influence that. And like, you can be stuck in the wrong program mm-hmm. um, and that can actually inhibit muscles as well. So like, you know. You could say, um, you know, like, uh, let's see, let me think. Like, I, I've got an ACL I'm working on, uh, working with right now, um, you know, and, uh, and shout out to, you know, Zach and those guys uh, for the episode that just came out the other day. Yes. You know, we're helping this young man recover from ACL meniscus um, surgery, and he's doing phenomenal and working with his doctor. Everything's great. But, you know, uh, we were talking about this, like, if his body was, for whatever reason, stuck in a motor program like, I don't know, I'm just hypothetically like jumping or something for whatever reason, you know, like that's not beneficial for him, especially at that stage. His brain doesn't need to be, you know, thinking about that right now. Like it needs to be activating based on something like walking because that's where he is right now, right? Like learning to walk without that brace, being able to bend the knee and leg, you know, feel that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if we're stuck in a poor pattern due to whatever the case may be, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, trauma or whatever else, you know, then that will cause muscles to shut down. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there's all kinds of different things, but I think yeah. that was a good question. I could probably talk for 45 minutes on that, but we try to keep our episodes at like half an hour. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Good answers. And that really goes back that, that example you just used very similar in, in the example we used of the meniscus from earlier. Uh, and that is, yeah, you, you have an injury or you have trauma, you have whatever, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to send those signals to, hey, yeah. muscles, you guys shut down because I'm trying to protect myself. So, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and a, a common muscle we see is the lat. Like, I, I mean, subjectively speaking, like, I feel like the lat is one that is just it's always kind of inhibited. And so. Yeah, hopefully, Dr. J, by the time this has come out, Dr. J and I have finally connected and gotten things taken care of. (laughs) But if we haven't, for anybody who's listening, we are we are playing phone tag and 
you know, we're both really busy, but we're working to make this thing happen. But I'll put it out on public record. I would love to hear, you know, why that is, if Doc's got any answer to that. I mean, I don't know. Do you have any thought on that? Like, it seems to be a really common one for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. And, you know, typically, you know, in this actually goes back to an RPR thing. And that is, you know, if you find anybody with an elbow problem, like a pitcher or whatever has elbow mm-hmm. pain, check their lat. I guarantee oh, yeah, you shut off. Yeah, it's pretty, it. pretty much always shut off. And mm-hmm. it can be shut off both from an RPR standpoint, quantitative, or from a neurotargeting standpoint, qualitative, probably shut off in both. In which yeah. case, you know, they would actually, you know, both treatments would probably be beneficial for that person. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, lights are frequently shut off and for who knows what reason. So, yeah, I mean, I know they're regular. I know they have a lot to do with blood sugar. Um, you know, I know that's highly correlated. I can't remember. I feel like. I feel like mineral wise, I think they're connected with uh, stomach acid. I think, um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I was looking to see if Mandy knew, um, yeah. I feel like they are, but you know, if they are, that makes sense because you know, a lot of, a lot of Americans have a lot of stomach acid issues, which yes, by the way, people, since we're here talking about this, like if you don't understand what happens with heartburn and stomach acid stuff, you, you need to understand how this works. Like, cause the gut plays a huge role. This is, this is our shout out to TC Hale. If we can get him on, um, TC's awesome, but here's the deal. Like, let's think of it this way. People get, you know, like acid reflux and they feel, Oh, you know, heartburn or whatever. Okay. Well, it's actually not the fact that you're um, producing too much acid. It's the fact that you don't produce enough acid. Right. Right. And, <laughs> <laughs> because you don't produce enough acid, whatever that little flap is called, I don't, do you know what it's called? I don't know. Yeah, the uh, the yes, uh, the uh, yes, the, the yeah, esophageal a, sphincter, gastro gastroesophageal. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so that that little, I just call it the flap. Clearly, yeah. you understand why yes. the flap doesn't close, okay? Because you don't make enough acid to close it. So if that doesn't close, then the acid bubbles up. See? Yep. So if you're starting to take heartburn stuff all the time, you're actually going to make the problem worse in the long run. You're not, right. you're, you're really treating, now don't get me wrong. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I just got back from Mexico, bro. So like, you know, yeah, you know, I wasn't really worried, uh, you know, about doing the right thing. I'm just going to, you know, you know, pop some Pepsi or whatever. But in the long run, you're actually, you know, making the problem worse, right? You actually have to address what's creating the issue, which is actually a lack of production, but that's a whole other right. conversation. So anyways, right. um, yeah, good stuff. So cool question, actually. We, hey, you got more value out of that answer, guys, because we just talked about a lot of other shit. So that, if you didn't get value <laughs> out of that, then I can't help you. All right. Um, question two. All right. What is your top techniques for improving a 40 or a 60-yard dash? Um, my top technique is to call Chris. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, uh, well, you, you, you start with this, Chris. I mean, I've got, I've been on record saying like, you know, the traditional kind of speed training stuff like that. That's not really my expertise, mm-hmm. although I am, you know, working to grow that quite a bit. So it's kind of your field, man. Um, you know, go for it. Fire away. All right. Well, just, just so you know, these numbers go back to, 2003, 2004, 2005, and up to present. Um, our success rate is an average of 0.33 seconds off of a 40-yard dash in four weeks. That's our standard. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wait, that's, your, your standard? Yes, correct. Okay. All right, so we've had as low as a 0.20, so two-tenths of a second, and we've had as good as a half a second 
off of a 40 yard dash. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, you know, those, those who are hitting half a second off, I mean, that's, those are usually the ones who started off pretty bad to start with. And then they had a lot of room to improve. Uh, but our average was, was 33 hundredths of a second in four weeks. Mm-hmm. So just to give you some idea. So the way we got there was about, I would say, 85% of what we did was work on their start and the things that would improve their start. Because you got to mm-hmm. remember, a 40-yard dash and a 60-yard dash are both fairly short races. Um, uh, 40, <laughs> Depends on who you're talking you know, to there, man. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Like, yeah. I don't run, so if you see me running, like you better run with me. So Probably, probably um, so. Yeah, there's probably something chasing yeah. them. That's all right. So yeah. there's uh, – and just hope you beat John so that who, whatever it is it's chasing. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but anyhow, if you were to uh, if you were to you know do a sixty yard dash, chances are you're starting in a base stealing start stance. You know uh, you know turn so you're you're facing one direction, turning uh, ninety degrees to the right and running as if you're stealing second base, mm-hmm. all right, running sixty yards. Uh, the forty uh, yard dash is in a three point stance and run out of a three point stance. Uh, so. Uh, Things that work on the start, we typically work on things that help the athlete project the hips, you know, get the hips going forward. Uh, And if you stop and think about the motion, and if you watch most of their really successful starters in the world, Christian Coleman, um, you know, most elite level sprinters, the start has, the legs are moving in much more of a piston-like action, okay, more knees up and forward down and back, up and forward, down and back. Whereas once they hit top speed, it's more of a cyclical action. Honestly, I have never seen anybody that was an outstanding starter who didn't also have good in top speed. I've never seen it. Now, I've seen people who are better at starting than hitting top speed, but if we got somebody who could run, say, in the one, 1. 1.6 seconds or below in the first 10 yards... I guarantee you that person was also fast at top speed. All right. So for 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 an athlete or even a young coach, you know, who's listening to this, I mean, top speed is self-explanatory. We understand yep. that. But really, in general, at what stage, you know, of a sprint, you know, do you see somebody reach top speed or or should you be able to get a good measurement of that before they start to fatigue out, I guess? Yeah, if you were to, somebody would usually uh, start to hit top speed, usually with my high school age athletes, it's usually going to be around 30 yards. Okay. Around 30 yards. It's going to vary. Okay. It's going to vary from Sure. Person it'll person. vary a little bit, but just in general yeah. for somebody who's kind of on the strength side of stuff. Yeah. 30 know. to 40 yards. Um, a middle school athlete, I'm going to say it's going to be closer to 20 yards before they hit top speed. They, they tend to hit their top speed sooner, and their top speed is also not as high. So okay. why why is that so to so to speak? Why would you? Why is a middle schooler going to hit top speed in general a little quicker than a more advanced athlete? Uh, I, I think over the the number one reason is going to be strength relative to body weight. I mean, let's face it. You're you know if you got kids go in the process of a growth spurt and they're weak as puppies relate mm-hmm. relative to the size of their body for for a for a few years, you know right around that time. So as a result, they have a harder time accelerating 
and they tend to hit whatever their top speed is much sooner. Um, that high school athlete, somebody who's already hit a little bit higher level of physical maturity a little bit later, and it's at a higher speed. So again, 30 to 40 yards top speed for a high school collegiate athlete. Um, you know, that's when they hit top speed. And then for that middle schooler, typically 20, 25 yards or so, give or take. Mm-hmm. Okay. All so, right. but yeah, I'm right. doing things like, like banded starts, uh, uh, things like sled work, uh, things that just working on start technique, you know, coming out of a three point stance. I mean, just working on the piston action of the legs, um, you know, learning how to, uh, uh, drop their weight from their left leg to their right leg in a base stealing start. Um, this, this would probably be more applicable to video, uh, which, uh, of which I could certainly put some videos on there, John, that could help people, uh, see this, you know, in action. Um, mm-hmm. most, most people are going to do things the same way. They're just a, a better athlete, a faster athlete is going to do things at a greater, I'm on, I'm going to use the word greater level of intensity, but the general technique is going to be the same, whether they are really fast or really slow. Mm-hmm. So, okay, cool. Yeah. And you know, I'll, I'll touch on it. I mean, as far as, you know, what, what we've done at ELP and I guess, let me preface a little bit to make sure that people kind of understand, you know, what we've done over the years. Um, understand that, you know, we all have kind of our influences and in, in our market is important as well. Like where you live, I think, plays a big part in your development as a coach and kind of what you focus on. So, you know, with my real kind of background being like the ultra fit Evo sports side of stuff and neuro target, like I always just kind of looked at things a little for a little bit differently, like, okay, I want to make sure muscles were engaging the right way, you know, um, and then, you know, on down the the path of that. But then also for me here at ELP in Memphis, like everybody around here, every school has a private strength coach, a private speed, everybody. It's, it's, I know a lot of schools across country do, but like when I say here, like it, it's kind of unique. Literally every school has it. Schools make kids around here sign contracts to say they can't go out to go train or work with anybody else. And so, one of the things that I did early on was I recognized kind of where the weakness in the market was. And that was the ability of the athlete to be strong, but like having usable strength and being able to display it. Then at school, their coaches are running sprints every single day. So it's like, I'm not going to worry about it. Like they're running every single day. We'll develop the other side of it, right? So like strength learning how to be reactive, turning muscles on and off, and then kind of the movement you know, side of stuff, you know, with Goda mm-hmm. came in. But I kind of dug into, and this is something that I would love. We, Brad, Brad Arnett said he'd be happy to come back on the show, and, and I would love to have him because Brad taught me a lot about this, and this was mm-hmm. the minimal stuff that I got. So, yeah, I went up to Brad's facility, you know, where, where he trains, you know, J.J. Watt and, you know, the Watt brothers and a few others. Spent, you know, a couple of days with him, and, and I learned, you know, about – start technique with him, you know, so I learned how to just be able to get an efficient setup. Do I know all the ins and outs of why that happened? I know, but you're right. Like being able to set up like your technique in that starting position is huge. I noticed major, major dividends with kids there. Mm -hmm. Um, Picked up a few things from Matt Gifford. 
Um, you know, when Matt was with Brad, I know Matt's got his own. He's somewhere else now. And I know Matt became a big name, you know, through the track and football consortium, um, <clears throat> which was great. If y'all haven't been before, it's a great thing. If they still do it, I don't, I don't even know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then, you know, kind of as a coach, you evolve, right? You, you start to learn a little bit more and a little more and you kind of adapt and change in the market. And that's kind of one of the things that we're doing now. So and these are good questions. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it's it's good to, you know, you've got a lot more experience in that than I do. But, <clears throat> like, all our guys always got faster. Like, some of the speed results we got were insane. I mean, mm-hmm. you you remember you remember the guy that I brought to Birmingham, you know. I'm, yes. I'm, Clay, yes. I, I was, Clay, I won't use his last name, but Clay, yeah. right? Clay was a freaking specimen. And so, he was like, a beast, this dude, yeah. This dude, 6'2". I think we had him at like 215. I want to say he's like 6% body fat. What, a 39-inch vertical or something like that. And then I think his fastest 60, like we brought him down to something like a, jeez. Man, I don't even remember what it was. But, it, I mean, it was earth-shattering. I mean, yeah. like a 6'3"-ish or something for a dude his size. Like, you know, we've had other draft picks who can fly, um, you know. But – I don't know. I think it's just interesting because it's like, you know, we talk about, you know, what's important for speed. And it's like you always kind of focused on the speed stuff and got results. I didn't really. I kind of focused on the precursors and I got results. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can actually get both. You're absolutely right. In fact, I would say for the longest time, I got away from pure speed training and focused on the development, which is basically what you're talking about. Uh, and because they still got faster. Now that said, you know, if someone was was not naturally gifted in the in the running motion like like Clay, like you're referring to, sure, yeah, they yes, they would get faster, but it doesn't mean they would be fast. So they we still would need to work on a little bit of underlying technique and that sort of thing. They would get faster, but they would not be fast enough, especially those kids who are kind of right on that bubble of maybe making the team and the thing that was kind of limiting them was their 60 yard dash time or whatever. You know, that was, that was the thing that the coaches kind of use. You're just not fast enough, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they need a little extra work. They needed that, that additional speed training. Now, yes. Are you going to have those freak shows of the world? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause we, we've had a few that ran the sub six, five, 60 yard dash. You know what? And there, let's face it. They were going to be fast with or without me, right? right they were exactly. going to be. I mean, you know. But as far as the, you know, there are those who are not naturally fast who still need a little extra help, and certainly mm-hmm. those people would we'd probably spend more time working on their starts uh, than we would their top speed. But we'd still work on their their top speed, also known as maximum velocity. Okay, so basically mm-hmm. the same thing, and we would work on that a bit as well. And, uh, but we usually we can, we can get maximal velocity with minimal amount of time on it. Mm-hmm. So now when do you, how do you like to determine, I mean, obviously everybody, you know, could stand to get faster, you know, mm-hmm. but in the realm of, you know, high school, you know, athletes, let's push late high school, early college, right? Because okay. I feel like middle school, early high school, they're young, adaptable. You can do mixed training and they're still going to improve. But as you get a little older, we got to, you know, you got to specialize with it just a little bit or segment it, et cetera, you know, to make sure that everybody's adapting the right way. 
Mm-hmm. When you get to that later high school, early college you know, stage, how do you like to evaluate whether or not somebody truly needs more speed or more strength? Um, well, number one, it's going to depend on their sport. <laughs> sure. Obviously, duh. You know, um, you know, and, you know, can you look at weight room numbers? Yeah, you can. You certainly can. Um, this is where I would probably refer a lot to that the old DB Hammer book, which uh, I'm not sure is still even in print. I have a copy of it. It is not in print. I believe I was one of the last people to ever get it. Side Let me note. tell you. All right. So can you de- you can use that book. It's got tons of stuff that will help you determine is someone strong enough? Sure. Is someone, does someone need more speed? Does someone need more strength? But now, if I know you the answer. To, I just kind of want to hear what your 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 approach is like. <laughs> yeah. So if you were to let, let's just say, you know, if you've got a college volleyball player, all right, a a female bo- volleyball player, and they let's say that they can you know squat two hundred, but they can't vertical jump twenty inches. All right. But let's 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 work on the plyos and get that jump up there, or their speed in a sense. If on the other hand they can only squat fifty pounds, or they can't squat fifty pounds, and they can vertical jump thirty, okay, maybe a little more on the strength end. That's a very generic answer, by the way, John. But uh, but still, I mean, you're going to look at numbers, right? You're going to look at numbers. I mean, what 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 are your numbers? And then in that, in that particular case. You know, in the case of the volleyball player, chances are adding a little bit of squat strength. Yeah, probably is going to help their vertical a bit, especially if you can maintain how fast they they lift their weights. So, mm-hmm. yeah, cool. Okay, no, that's uh, that was a good question. And again, Very I think we question. gave we gave more uh, more info to it. Yes, <laughs> than that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. What else? Uh, what else you want to add to it? Anything? Uh, that's about everything I can think of. I'm sure I'll think of something as soon as we get off the phone, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, that's, that's my thoughts. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, we appreciate those questions. Thank you for uh, either asking us in person or submitting them. Um, when you do ask us in person, we try to kind of write them down, jot them down so we can bring them to the show, but, um, appreciate you guys listening you guys, uh, pay your dues, share the show and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. See you guys. <laughs>